Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my huge pleasure to welcome Rebecca Middleton to the G Word. Rebecca is the Vice Chair of the Participant Panel at Genomics England, for which many thanks. She is herself a patient with a rare condition, as well as being a PR and Communications Director with over 20 years of international experience. And as well as sitting on the Participant Panel at Genomics England, Rebecca has taken part in the 100,000 Genomes Project and is involved in our work on newborn genome sequencing as well. A wide range of uh, activities. Rebecca, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Maybe if we start with, I guess, a bit about your journey. You've said, I think, we're nothing without data um, in the fight against uh, rare conditions. And we have this phrase at Genomics England about every data point behind that, you know, there's a human story. Tell us a little bit about your human story. My story really started back in 2009 when my mum very suddenly died of um, a brain aneurysm rupture Um, and at that point I hadn't even heard of the word aneurysm before. It was one of those words I kind of knew but didn't actually know what condition it referred to and at the time um, sitting in intensive care I was told by the consultant don't worry um, she wasn't born with it and it's absolutely not hereditary which immediately set off alarm bells for me and they are now two facts that we actually know are probably and in fact are indeed wrong. So I came to terms with obviously you know losing mum very very suddenly um, and this word aneurysm just kept bouncing around and it was only when I was pregnant that I thought maybe I should just have a look into this and then understood that there was uh, hereditary cases out there. There was a familial disease there. Um, but more or less put this to the back of my mind until 2014. And I'd been living in Germany at the time. And it was on a Friday evening. And my daughter and I, who was only sort of 18 months at the time, had just moved back to, to the UK. And my husband was going to continue to commute. And we made a really good kind of decision for the family and was feeling really good. When we got a call out of the blue to say that my uncle David was very seriously ill. And could we come into the hospital because he had a burst aortic aneurysm? And it was like, oh my gosh, there's that word again. Um, Is this more than a coincidence? What is this? It was one of those moments where your blood absolutely ran cold and you kind of knew at that point that something's going to change here. We very sadly lost David that evening and it was at his funeral 
that my cousins and I kind of sat round uh, with various glasses of wine and cups of tea and kind of discussing, you know, what what is this? This surely is more than a coincidence, isn't it? And then uh, a, a dear old uncle kind of wandered over and filled in some gaps and said, ah, oh, well, your Aunt Bet, of course, she had an aortic aneurysm. And of course, Rebecca, your grandmother, Mary, she also died of a brain aneurysm. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Wow, Excuse oh my me. gosh. Um, and, and we just didn't know, you know, the story around the family was that she died of preeclampsia. And we believe it was a preeclampsia that caused the aneurysm to birth. She was 38 weeks pregnant at the time. So it was incredibly tragic that she died and also um, the baby too. Um, but that was back in, back in the 60s. And I suppose it's, again, one of those things that was never really spoken about. So all of a sudden, we started to connect the dots and a, a picture started to emerge. And uh, yeah, I decided to pick up the baton and, and kind of run with it and, and, and investigate more on behalf of the family. I did my research um, and, and again, found out more about the familial disease. But when you search for brain aneurysms, you have a very bleak picture in front of you. There is a lot of clinical information out there, a lot of research studies, and they're talking about, uh, you know, the morbidity and death statistics. They're talking about how people are living with disabilities after hemorrhage. It is not a pretty picture out there. It is a very dark and negative tone there was nothing out there about how to live well with an aneurysm and 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 how to move forward and how you know if you believe that you have this condition in your family what to do there was absolutely no advice out there so I went along to my GP who basically shrugged his shoulders and said oh I'm sure it's probably nothing don't worry um, um but I'm not actually sure what to do with you so I was like well could I perhaps go and see a genetic counsellor so they referred me on to a genetic counsellor and in the meantime I decided to undergo private screening to speed the process up and to cut a long story short, I was diagnosed in October 2014 that I too had a brain aneurysm um, and that it did go down the line. So then it was grandmother, mother and then myself. And um, I was also given the diagnosis of familial aneurysm syndrome as well. So as well as a clinical diagnosis, so I had an aneurysm, there was a, a genetic diagnosis or a diagnosis at least um, acknowledging that there was um, a genetic element to this condition. Wow. If we just go back to the conversation with your GP, what, what research had you done that led you to suggest a genetic counsellor conversation? That, that, I mean, that seems like a very proactive and an appropriate conversation but what had led you to that how had you found that out it was only through um a, a, a friend who was going through similar um a, a similar journey trying to unpick something that they believed was genetic within their family that they had said oh i've been to see a genetic counselor because again this is a term i'd never heard before yeah so i was like oh well that 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 sounds exactly what i need somebody to help me unpick this um because 
I, you know, I think the doctor, the GP was actually relieved when I suggested that because it gave him something to do and somewhere to refer me on to. Because at the time as well, we were looking at, um, you know, we had aortic aneurysms in the family and brain aneurysms in the family. Is there a link there? You know, so we, there was lots of things um, at play um, as well. Um, and then, so, it, you know, it was a moment for me, but it was also a moment for my family at that diagnosis mm. point, because then I had the, the responsibility of going back to say, yes, it is genetic. And guess what? I've got it too. Um, and, and, you know, you go into all of these kind of consultations with the kind of doctors and neurosurgeons go, yes, absolutely. Knowledge is power. I want to know everything. But then when you do know, you take a massive breath in and go, oh, gosh, I can now, now unknow. And now I have to move forward with this knowledge and know that from this point on, my life has changed and the life of my family has changed because they have that knowledge too. And in particular, I was, you know, concerned for my sister, concerned for my nieces and concerned for my daughters. Yeah, absolutely. And with the wider family, how did they follow up on that? You mentioned that you had also got some genetic testing um, on the uh, private system did they go into the NHS system? Like, what sort of happened with the wider family? Yeah, so many chose to be tested um, and accessed because we had that familial aneurysm syndrome um, diagnosis. Um, then it was easier for them to get tested. So my sister got tested. My cousins, um, so the daughters of David, also got tested. Um, a cousin at the time was living in Australia, so they she had to access their healthcare system as well. But then there were others who didn't get tested. And they felt that actually, no, I don't want to know. And and both decisions are absolutely yeah. valid. Um, and, and, you know, it is a complete personal choice. And the majority of the family were, were very supportive. Some parts of the family also just didn't want to acknowledge and didn't want to know. And, you know, that again, that that they have their reasons for that yeah but it's that overall responsibility that you know when you have as as the person who kind of confirmed that diagnosis it, it felt like a heavy burden on my shoulders to have that responsibility to then let the family know because then I know that then they have to go through their own diagnostic odyssey or even if you know they decide not to get tested they have that seed of doubt left in their head yeah. so it, it you know, it was there were some dark days there, um, and I remember in particular a very dark, wet Tuesday, November evening, sitting alone with a glass of wine and Doctor Google, and and just just being you know feeling complete despair because as I say, there is no source of information for people like me. I was desperately looking for somebody like me, as every person with a rare condition does. They they want to know that they're not alone. It, felt like I was alone um, and it felt like the information in front of me was just obsessed with you know people who had died about this condition and also you know thinking of my own experience of course my mother had died my grandmother had died so you know I had kind of that negative family and that tr tragic family experience that I was basing my kind of thoughts on um, as well but it was at that point that I decided this this has to change that when the time is right 
I, I need to do something about this yeah. because I know I'm not alone. The research studies who have studied many families like me tell me I am not alone. I just need to connect with them and find them and kind of bring them together. And um, so for a number of years, I was on watch and wait because my aneurysm was not perhaps in the right place or the right size to be treated at that time. So I underwent regular brain scans and it was only when it was found to have grown um, in 2018 um, that it was decided that it was now time to, to treat it because if it's growing, it means it's unstable and unstable aneurysms are never a good thing. Um, so then I underwent brain surgery and had coils um, and, and a stent. But that's kind of the clinical um journey i yep. also went through a genetic journey as well and that meant joining the hundred thousand genomes project in 2015 so i had um yeah my diagnosis i was put through kind of genetic nhs testing which we kind of knew wouldn't show anything but we had to kind of go through the process because my amazing you know genetics consultant dr julian barwell was like there is this project coming up and it's going to be great and we need to get you on it uh, but we have to do this first so it's like great okay let's do this and then so i was lucky enough to to be offered the opportunity to to be recruited onto the project along with my along with my father back in 2015. wow and it's i mean that is that is quite an extraordinary journey and you you talk about taking responsibility playing that role in your wider family and also about proactively shouldering that responsibility to some extent on behalf of a community of people who um, have this condition, have, have received this um, diagnosis. And you've not only taken on that responsibility, but actually done a lot of uh, proactive activity around that. Um, tell, us a, tell us a bit about going from kind of vaguely knowing what the word aneurysm means to actually setting up and leading a community of, of people with aneurysms around the hereditary brain aneurysm support group. I joined the Genomics England participant panel um, back in 2016 and those amazing group of guys became, if you like, my unofficial support group. I learned so much from them. They are all active in their communities um, as well. Um, and, and I was like inspired by everything that they had done. Um, and they gave me the kind of the strength to, to go and, and, and try and set this up. And, you know, because PR and comms professional, I kind of was like, yeah, I can, I can do this. I can do this. But right from the very start, I knew that I needed evidence. I needed data. You know, Genomics England has taught me well. Um, and, and there wasn't there wasn't the information out there. There wasn't a single source out there. There On Facebook, there are a number of really active and great communities for people with aneurysms, but they are people who have suffered sporadic aneurysms and those who have got familial disease as well. So, you know, a lot of the messages have been mixed up there. There wasn't one place to go. And, and it's kind of when you're on your own, you feel like, you know, am I the only one? Is this a thing? You know, is this more than a coincidence? Am I going mad? And you want to be part of something that, that says, yes, this is a thing and you are worthy of support and you are worthy of research and you are worthy for clinicians and scientists to give you their time. So it very much kind of bringing everybody together, but very aware that we needed to understand, if you like, the problem, the scale of this, because, you know, 
I had to go through many kind of research studies to, to, to get a vague picture. And, you know, as my knowledge built, I knew that we needed even more knowledge. So um, last year I was um, part of the Beacon mentor group which was fantastic I had Mark Bolding as my mentor for the past year and he's helped kind of guide and shape this this acorn of an idea that I had of HBA support and I very deliberately called it hereditary brain aneurysm support because again familial is a it's a term that you hear in in clinic but it's not a term that you use you know at the school gates yeah um, hereditary is a term that you use at the school gate. So there was kind of a lot of internal debate there of where we go with that. But I had that idea um, and um, yeah, together with support have been able to kind of grow this idea. And through um, my work with Beacon and Mark, I was introduced to Costello Medical um, who are a clinical and scientific communications consultancy and discuss the idea with them and, dis and and the need to provide a clear picture of the current research landscape as well as the treatment and management guidelines. There is no singular source in the UK or globally that is accessible to patients so we needed to change that. That was the problem that we needed to change and they agreed very kindly on a pro bono pro bono basis to help with this research so together we tackled kind of the three key questions that that I had in my mind of what is the pattern what is the distribution and the prevalence of this disease in the UK but also globally as well um, what are the genetic alterations that can cause this familial or hereditary disease and and what are the guidelines available for those with familial aneurysms what's the advice for screening and what support is out there so we had these three kind of big buckets that we needed to fill these three big questions um, and and together throughout the past year we've we've been doing the research and and filling up those buckets and i think i'm right in saying that the report came out just last month in July, is that right? The report was finished in July and it will be launched in September, which is Brain Aneurysm Awareness Month, which feels exactly the right time to, to launch this. Um, and at the same time, we'll have our website ready to, and really by that point, we're ready to, to go um, with hereditary brain aneurysm support and um, yeah, and, and, and let the baby grow. But, you know, the report is is for us it's a starting point it's a starting point to have conversations with the patient community with the clinical community and with the research community as well we as well as filling up these buckets of knowledge um, and finding out more um, about these key questions we've also identified where there is gaps in research and that's just as important because what I'm not hearing, and 143 papers have been analysed for, for this report, and some of those medical records go back to 1951, but what I'm not hearing through any of this is a clear patient voice or a clear, uh, a, a clear evidence that the patient experience has been reflected. So that is something that we are very, very keen to address um, as well. And I, I did want to say congratulations on the report. I mean, it's so much work has gone into it and, you know, catalyzing that, making it happen is, is hugely impressive. The report itself, I found incredibly um, accessible, which I think is really 
an achievement in itself because these topics are so technical and um, and scientific. But just things like the explainers about different topics, the visual um, graphics and so on, I think it's a real model of best practice about how to communicate about these complicated topics in a way that non-specialists um, can understand. So I'm, I'm hoping that you feel incredibly proud of that and um, a sense of satisfaction from at least, as you say, you know, starting to fill that void that was um, that was there before. It's been thank you. It's been it's been a, you know a huge amount of work over the past year. But hearing that really, yeah, it's it, it, it's been a challenge to make it ins ensure that we make it accessible for for all the stakeholders. Um, so we have been scratching our heads a lot trying to think. Okay, if I was a patient, what would I want to know? If I was a clinician, what would I want to know? So thank you for the feedback. Yeah. That's fantastic. No, that's Stella Medical have done a great job. It's, um, it's great. And you mentioned the, the difference between, for example, the word uh, familial or the word um, hereditary. You were a core part of the development and publication of our language, of the participant panel's um, sort of guide to language um, around genomics and recognitions and so on. Give us, give us a bit of context around why it's so important to get the language right on these topics. Um, what some of the thinking was around the language guide and, um, you know, where people can find that if they're interested. Absolutely. You know, working in PR and communications, I know the power of a word. I know the power of a story. I know the power of, of a phrase and language really is, you know, it's, it's, it's so meaningful and so valuable and it's it really does stick. I think everyone around the participant panel has an example of, you know, a perhaps a bad example of how when they have been spoken to by a clinician some words really hit home and really hurt and they still talk about you know six years ago our consultation with Dr X on this date and he said X it, it sticks with people it means a lot and it can really affect their, their, their mental health and how they think about themselves and how they think about their condition or the condition of, of, their, of their children. Um, and it's something that as a panel we have been tackling and we have been thinking about for, for a long time and, and, and trying, to, trying to, if you like, educate and ensure people within um, Genomics England kind of understand where we're coming from and the power of language and, and what it means to the recipient on the on the receiving end of that. So we decided to do something about it and, you know, put together our language guide and it's aimed at clinicians and researchers um, and and what we've also done as part of the language guide is not simply say, okay, say X and not Y, but try and explain why. So right. we put up some context around it. So again, hoping that that story around the words and why those words matter also stick with the clinicians and the researchers and they understand why it matters so much. Um, and, and all of the lessons, um, that we have learned through all of our diagnostic journeys uh, through all the journeys that we have been on are in this uh, in this guide um, and we've distilled them down and and you know we are trying to push this out to as many people as possible inside genomics england but also in the wider ecosystem um, as well and you know principle number one as you said earlier every data point has a face you know there is a there is a person there it's not just a number it's not just a code and you know principle number two 
treat people as you would like to be treated you know would you like to be described as abnormal or mutant or you know that you are constantly suffering you know I am not suffering I am living with but I am not suffering from so you know all of these things matter um, because you know rare disease is collectively so common um, and therefore you don't know who is suffering from a rare condition or a rare disease you wouldn't know that I had a rare condition if you passed me in the street for example so yeah you know we we hope that it's a useful tool and we hope that it gets shared a lot and it's available on the Genomics England website it is and uh, I can also say it's uh, it's given to everyone who joins uh, Genomics England as part of onboarding um, and we've uh, given it out to both all of our research groups and also a lot of our um, partners in the NHS. The NHS being the third largest organization in the world, I think it'll take a little bit of time to percolate um, through those million and a half people, but um, it's out there and getting getting really good, um, really good feedback. And I guess sort of looking to the future to some extent, one of the, the big programs that we're in the process of shaping and launching at Genomics at the moment is this big program around newborn sequencing. And that's kind of building on the foundations of the 100,000 Genomes Project, adding to those data sets to try and enhance those, uh, those research efforts into um, rare conditions as well as, um, as, well as cancer. You've, you're very kindly giving a, a, a bunch of time to that program, both in its, its overall steering group and also um, specifically on the, the work around how to engage with and um, recruit kind of mums-to-be into the programme. What was it that, I guess, sort of inspired you to, to make that choice to give kind of even more to this community? It started with an invitation to um, join the steering committee of um, the, the dialogue process that actually kicked this all off. So this programme was kicked off by an extensive dialogue um, that, that talked to the general population about whether newborn screening, uh, genomic newborn screening, would be acceptable to them, what their thoughts are. Um, and it, it was a fantastic piece of research. And it gave us a very clear steer that, in principle, people were very positive towards it. But they gave us a message to take your time and get this right and think about the complete journey, not just the diagnosis, but about the support and about the support for not just parents, Parents, um, and babies, but also support for the NHS, which everybody understood was under a lot of strain as well. And it was that strong message, take your time and get it right, which is the principle that is now running through uh, the project um, uh, as well. Um, so that really sparked my interest in this. So it was a pleasure when I was invited onto the Steering Co to, to, to go forward with this project. And I'm there as a mother, as a rare disease uh, patient, but also as a PR and comms professional um, as well. Um, and, you know, my job is to oversee, to challenge, to influence and to represent as best I can uh, a range of views. But also, you know, where I don't understand anything, you know, to, to speak up. I think, you know, this project is is open because it's not just tackling about how, it's tackling whether, whether this is right for the NHS. So that means that everything is on the table. And that is fantastic because it, it means that we can challenge, we can tackle all of those big ethical issues as well. What's really exciting about the project is the fact that this is co-designed. Um, and that's what really excited me as well. So that means we're working and listening with the with parents, with families and midwives, and listening and learning as we go. And through that process, hopefully building trust as well. 
and throughout the public have been completely involved. Um, I sit on the steering committee and chair the recruitment working group and as a volunteer, you know, share my experience and I'm learning a lot from other patients and parents and healthcare professionals too. And, and throughout this, we are talking to an extensive range of, of new parents or soon-to-be parents and key groups within our community to kind of ensure that we're listening to their needs um, as well. And I think what is really important and one of the key messages that is coming through is that we have a duty to support not just at the point of diagnosis, but beyond as well. So, you know, talking to the parents about how they would like to learn about the project, how they would like this project to be described to them when in their pregnancy journey is the right time to talk to them because we all know if as a parent you are completely bombarded by information um, and when is the right time when do you have the right brain space for this but also if there is a diagnosis then what and that's a message that we're hearing time and time again that this project has to support the whole journey not just the point of diagnosis as well but it's incredibly exciting you know nine children nine babies are born every day with a rare condition that with treatment could be treated managed or even cured and there are over 200 genetic conditions out there that this project could potentially also help with as well so it's it's a great opportunity but I'm, I'm very pleased to, to say that the project is taking its time is learning is listening um, and is doing all it can to, to get this right and of course we won't get everything right there are huge ethical challenges here but that's why there'll be another evaluation process at the end of this to ensure that we are taking those lessons on board too and making sure that we're embedding the parents in everything that we're doing getting them involved in the ethics getting them involved in what conditions we should um, screen for so there was a, a dialogue over the summer as well so we've now got off four key principles there um, and every, all the work that we are doing the recruitment um, and also with the consent getting parents views into this to make sure it's designed around them and their needs absolutely and I've been privileged enough to sit in on some of those uh, dialogues and conversations. And I guess one point is just back to the, the point about language. It's amazing to me to see how much we can learn about good and, um, and not so good use of language from that. So one of the um, mums that uh, was in a session I was, I was uh, observing reacted really strongly to the word uh, pilot, for example, that we had, I think, initially thought was a pretty neutral word. And she said, pilot, what are you talking about pilot? Is this, do you even know what you're doing? Like if you're, if you're what, I don't want you experimenting on my kid if you don't know what you're doing. You're like, okay, no, 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 the, the technology is completely proven. It's just, um, you know, about applying it in this context and so on. Okay, do not talk about pilot. <laughs> you know, so, um, and so it's, it's so useful because if we didn't have those dialogues, we would make those mistakes for real with thousands of people and so on. So actually the, co-design process that you've talked about is so powerful not just because it's the right thing to do which it is but because it makes the the design so much better um it's it's um it's it's incredibly powerful you know it's it's so valuable we you know we all make assumptions you know even you know we think that we're pretty open-minded and you know we get some of these topics and issues and it's only when you have these conversations and people challenge your your absolute beliefs that you go oh Yes, you're right. I, I, I hadn't looked at it that way, but you're completely right because what it means to you doesn't, it doesn't mean that to me. But we're both right, and 
you know, and absolutely we need to kind of accept those challenges and it makes the project stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And if we lift our heads to the future, you know, for for the babies whose parents choose to uh, take part in the programme, and for those who, when they, they reach adulthood themselves, choose to continue as part of um, that, that community, this will be the first group of humans ever to grow up with their genome kind of on file. I guess none of us know what that really means at this point, which is why you know, this is a research uh, project. But as you think about that, um, that journey for this group of uh, people who are taking part in the study, and also, I guess, more broadly, how the whole field of genomics um, evolves into the, the sort of medium and, and really long term as these um, kids grow up. What would your hope be of what we can, how we can change, you know, the delivery of healthcare services, the, the way that um, we as humans interact with knowledge about our genome and, and things like that? And consciousness is a vast question, but, like, you know, if, what, what would your um, sort of longer term hopes be for it? I, I think it's it's a big question, but I think there's a short answer with the word trust. Mm. We need to build trust in this completely. It is an unknown, an unknown perhaps to the scientists and clinicians as it is to the public. And therefore, we have to ensure that we are building this service with the people that it will be it will be for um, and that's the way you build trust by putting those needs and those people at the heart of this program and you know something that we have learned from the participant panel is we have to be in it we have to be in it to 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 ensure that we are adding value because as we have just discussed you know we all make assumptions we are all human um, and and society will change what we think now won't be what we think in 5 10 15 years time as science changes but our value systems change as a society so we need to keep agile we need to be pragmatic but we need to keep listening and 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 stay open and and by getting the people the parents the patients involved the kids involved in this that's how we build trust because we're breaking yeah. down the doors you know we are we are opening the door to the lab we are opening the door to the hospital we are saying there is nothing here to be worried about um and and that's you know knowledge is power and and that is going to be key incredibly powerful perspective yeah um i i think someone used to trace recently it's not just about looking in the shop window, it's about opening the door and getting behind the till, you know, which I think is a, um, a great metaphor. I love, I love your point about opening doors. Final, final question for me, you know, the, one of the rationales for having this podcast series is to bring a real diversity of voices into the conversation as genomics becomes more and more part of the, the mainstream. Are there any either topics or people who you think we don't hear enough about those topics or hear enough from those people? Who should we get onto the pod? Um, I would love to hear, you know, more about researchers who are doing really exciting things with participants and who are learning from participants. Um, 
you know, we have seen so much in the news recently about all the fantastic things that it's being achieved because of our data. You know, some really amazing announcements uh, to do with cancer, to do with new guidelines, which is really going to unlock how we diagnose rare disease and rare conditions going forward. You know, it's fantastic. Um, and they are using our data, which is brilliant, which is, you know, positive, And that's exactly what we want. But how are they using our experience as well as our data? Um, and I would love to hear more about that um, and, and to learn more about that. Okay, challenge accepted. We'll bring more of more of those voices uh, to bear. In the, in, the, in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time out of your multi-hatted uh, sort of life to come and share your thoughts and experience. It's been incredibly um, inspiring. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.